Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Associate Professor Sean Kane from Monash University. Today, we're going to be talking about sleep, circadian rhythms, and the impact of people's lives. This was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed this. I could have spoken to Sean all day. Maybe it would have been better facilitated around two cigars and uh, two cups of tea. Um, but it was a really interesting chat. So if you have an interest in circadian physiology, circadian biology, and the effect on humans and behavior and mood and shift work, exercise and more, this is a great episode to listen to. Um, Sean can be followed on Twitter at circadian247, and we'll put up links to his um, profile, LinkedIn, and so on, all in the show notes as well. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did. Um, now we'll get into some ads and then we'll be straight into the episode. Exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health. However, both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten, yet even more integral to our health, namely sleep. The Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. Improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training, reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more for further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Mark Bubbs, and I'm excited to announce my new book, Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That is Revolutionizing Sports, is available for pre-order right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, and local booksellers, before its release on May 24th. Peak is a groundbreaking book exploring the fundamentals of high performance, not the fads, the importance of consistency, not extreme effort, and the value of patience, not rapid transformation. Peak explores the leading experts, such as Dr. Ian Dudekin, who are influencing the top performers in sports on how to achieve world-class success. What are performance professionals saying about peak? Dr. Rocco Monto, orthopedic surgeon, Team USA physician, and author of The Fountain says, Peak is a masterpiece of nutritional science from one of the world's leading authorities of athletic health and performance. It's a fantastic resource that provides a roadmap to reaching true wellness. Kelly Olenek, forward for the NBA's Miami Heat, says, A must-read for athletes and everyone alike. Peak is an immeasurable tool to becoming the best you can be. And Dr. Fergus Connolly, PhD, performance expert and author of Game Changer and 59 Lessons, says, Peak is one of the most impressive and detailed books on applied sports science ever published, a must-have for any practitioner in performance. Regardless if you're trying to improve your physique, propel your endurance performance, or improve your team's record, Peak is about being an expert in the fundamentals and assumes that while top athletes are born, they can also be made. Pick up your copy of Peak today. Sean, good morning or good afternoon. Oh, it's still morning in your time in Melbourne. Uh, how are you? Great, Ian. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us today on this wintry weather. Uh, it's freezing here in Western Australia at the ripe old uh, temperature of 18 degrees Celsius. And we've had about... 
uh, five mils of rain, which feels like 400 feet here. But anyway, so yeah, yeah what's, what's yeah, slightly more miserable here, but <laughs> <laughs> that'll burn. If you don't like the weather, just hang on five minutes, it'll change again. So yeah, it's good. So Sean, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, we know you're a busy man at Monash University. So we'll get straight into it, Sean. Um, you don't sound like you're from Melbourne. So where did you grow up and how did you make it to Melbourne? Well, that's a good catch. Uh, I'm from Canada originally. So I grew up on the very east coast of Canada and New Brunswick. And when people ask me where I'm from in, in Australia and I say New Brunswick, they look at me a little funny. They've never heard of it. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, it was in, I did all of my, my training in Canada. Um, did my undergraduate work in Montreal, my graduate work in Toronto, uh, and then moved on to the United States after that. And so what did you study for your undergraduate degree, Sean? I studied psychology. So my, my undergraduate degree is psychology, basically neuroscience, behavioral neuroscience, uh, and the same for my, my graduate work. Graduate work as well. What's the difference, Sean, between, let's say, the field of neuroscience and psychology? How, how would you differentiate between those two fields? Well, I'd say uh, neuroscience is really, um, it's sort of a field within psychology. So, you know, psychology is much more broad. But of course, you can study neuroscience from other fields as well. So it, it, it spans multiple fields. So, you know, I've got uh, friends who are really physics trained and they're doing neuroscience. Um, so it's, it's uh, there's some overlapping, uh, you know, some Venn diagram overlapping things there. Yeah. Would, would, you, would you say that neuroscience is more probably um, scientific and more objective as opposed to psychology, which can be, I wouldn't say it's less scientific, but can be very subjective in terms of people's um, self-reported feelings and their kind of frames of reference on the world? Yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty fair to say. Uh, neuroscience is, is usually more uh, you know, measuring of objective things, and psychology necessarily sometimes is, is about... Uh, someone's experiences which are self-reported it doesn't mean uh, you know it's not a valid scientific pursuit uh, but it's uh, it, it's definitely not about uh, you know measuring exact quantities of things often yeah so Sean um, I find that from a lot of people from North America seem to come into the sleep field from psychology particularly neuroscience as well um, is that kind of what pushed you down the sleep path or did you have a certain passion? Did you pick on a project? Did you stumble on by accident? How, how did you kind of find the area of sleep? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a good point uh, because in, in Canada, it kind of punches above its weight in neuroscience. So it's got a really strong uh, neuroscience background. So a, a, lot, of, a lot of undergraduates um, have an opportunity to, to do work in neuroscience labs. And, and it was by accident that I, uh, I went into the sleep and circadian rhythms field. I was more interested initially in learning. and I volunteered in a couple of labs and one was doing uh, neuroplasticity and the other was doing uh, circadian rhythms. Uh, and even though the, the plasticity learning lab was my primary lab, I ended up going in the other direction uh, along circadian rhythms. I really liked it right away. I felt it was such a fundamental thing. It affects all other systems. Uh, it just seemed like a, you know, endless thing to be to be devoting yourself to and is that trying is that kind of um you know continued on throughout your career where you've had this kind of uh core area of looking at circadian rhythms and you've built upon that as you've gone over the last 20 years or has it have you diverged from or diversified from that or diverged from that path 
Uh, not really. I've, I've really focused ever since uh, my, my undergrad uh, at that point where I kind of decided um, that rhythms was, was my way to go and all of my um, uh, graduate work was there. I've really been doing it ever since, but still that, that allows you to have a pretty broad range of, of studies. So if you, if you look at what I'm doing, if you look at my list of papers, you'll see some, you know, pretty, pretty out there stuff, but it, it's all fundamentally generally re related to circadian rhythms. It just, it touches all aspects of, mm. of health. So it's, it's kind of endless. If you, our bodies are full of clocks, almost every tissue in the body has self-sustaining circadian rhythms. Uh, so it's, it's something you can study no matter what system you're interested in. Yeah. And um, because you came into sleep and, and uh, that path through psychology and neuroscience and then the circadian rhythms, a lot of people often ask me, uh, how, how did I get into sleep? And it's because it, there's no undergraduate degree. There's no really postgraduate degree you can do. And most people do it at a PhD level in terms of research or to get into it from different angles. And um, what would you say is the best way, Sean, if somebody was sitting out there today and they were 19, 20 years of age and they wanted to study sleep, what would you say is the best route into, you know, becoming a sleep scientist, sleep researcher. Yeah, you're right. There's not a there's there's not an obvious path there, and you a, a lot of people happen upon it. I think the 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 best thing to do is to try to if you're in a university, find researchers who are doing that work, and often you you'll find many. You know, get get that person who's doing something that appeals to you, and then offer your time to them. I I run here at Monash uh, an internship program. It's basically uh, my experience, which was when I was an undergraduate in psychology, I found out, oh, you can volunteer in labs. And so I volunteered in a lab and, and realized that research was for me. But I would suggest to, to younger people who are looking to get some training, just do some volunteering in, lab, in labs and, and see if it's for you. Yeah. Do you think on the back of that then, Sean, do you think that people or sorry, not the people, do you think that universities should offer a kind of a pathway like like physicists will do, you know, undergrad in physics and then they'll go through and do a postgrad or a PhD, for example. Do you think that's that would be good in sleep? Or do you think that the one of the benefits we have from sleep is that people come from all angles, from neuroscience, sports science, even engineering, um, when we start looking at fatigue detection technologies, because we have this such kind of an array of people coming into sleep science, do you think that's a good thing? Or do you I, think it'd be better to have a structured pathway through? Well, I, I think it's, it's kind of working the way it is. It'd be great to have more broad outreach. Um, and I, I can see some benefits to have some, having something focused. But, uh, but I think it is, it's working well the way it is. You've got people from all sorts of avenues coming in and, and working together. It's really multidisciplinary. Um, which which can make it uh, it can make it difficult to have a, a structured single program. Uh, having said that, I I offer a, a unit um, at Monash on sleep and circadian rhythms, where you know I, I try to you know focus some some learning on on the the key areas in those areas of research. Yeah, I think like as a as a kind of a personal point for myself, I've crossed over in, from industry into sports and into general sleep research, and I find that it's uh, it's really different when you go like let's say to different journals for publication. So, for example, if you go to a sports science journal um, with actigraphy, you'll probably get it published. But if you don't have any self-reported data from the athlete, they, they won't actually like it. Whereas if you go to a sleep journal, mm. self-reported data is you know 
near on useless and you need kind of PSG data and vice versa. If you go back to a sports journal with PSG data, polysomnography, they're like, well, why didn't you get actigraphy and ask people what was going on? So it's really from a research point of view and publication, it can be very frustrating for those who span, um, you know, who go across different kind of spans or different kind of disciplines that there's no structure in terms of um, the agreed objective methodology for collecting sleep measures. Yeah, that, it's kind of a problem in general um, in, in science where people get, get siloed. So, you know, you're, you're in your little area. So let, let's say you're, you've got a lab and you do sleep deprivation research. Uh, if you report anything other than, um, you know, number of 500 millisecond lapses on a simple reaction time test, uh, they can get up in arms. Um, they, you know, they, they get used to publishing what they're used to. Yeah, uh, and often you can you can get some pushback when when you're not sticking to it. But I I would say just um, always try to do what you think is is best, and and there will be a home for it eventually. Yeah, and I think like you know I think if you cross different demands, it's about just pushing pushing the 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 learning and the knowledge slightly further. You know, and even if that gets you know refuted in the future or gets you know proven wrong, well you know we've we've still done something to move the needle. So yeah, yeah. I think it all helps. Yeah, I think I don't. I just don't think in general it's a good idea to to do something and take some measure just because other people are doing it and getting it published or in sometimes getting away with it. So a, a lot of times some measures are poor and and yeah. you, you can you can get it published because other people got it published, but that doesn't mean it's right. Uh, so you know everyone should be thinking about what they're measuring and and trying to report the right thing, the goal of of getting at the truth of something rather than the goal of doing a measure that they know they can get published. Yeah. I think we'll come back to that point when we discuss your most recent uh, paper um, about the effect of light because, you know, that's one of the things in that paper where there's some really good objective measures uh, as opposed to subjective uh, feelings. So I think we'll come back around to that. But I I did want to, looking through your history, Sean, over the last, you know, you've been publishing since the 90s. um, 1999, so not that, not the early 90s. Not the early 90s, yeah. Yeah, so by that stage then, I think shell suits, the tracksuits were gone. Uh, the floral colors were gone. Um, ecstasy tablets were still around a little bit, but anyway. Post, um, well, well post grunge. <laughs> well post grunge, yeah. Um, so anyway, so 1999 on the cusp, uh, the, probably the year The Sopranos got released. I found it really interesting. I was doing a rerun of The Sopranos recently, and um, somebody said to me, they never heard of The Sopranos, the show, where my jaw dropped, and I was like, you are missing out on life. <laughs> and then they never heard of The Wire, and I was like, oh wow. my God, are you in for a tree? That was Elliot. the true, the first golden age of... Uh... <laughs> Still my two favorite shows. Yes, me too. Sean, in some of your earlier research, you did a lot of stuff, uh, uh, research involving uh, hamsters. Why, why is hamsters used in sleep research? Like, what, What's the benefit of research in sleep in hamsters, and how does that apply to humans? Yeah, it it does seem odd. Um, you know, these little fluffy animals, they're they're nocturnal. Um, but the the reason they're a favorite animal in circadian rhythms research is that they have crazy accurate onsets of nighttime activity. Uh, if you put a hamster in in the dark, if you let's say you you watch it, uh, it's um, onset of activity at night. And then you drop it into the dark and let it, what we say, free run. So it keeps its own internal time with no light cycle um, telling it what time of day it is. You can tell, you could basically predict a couple of months later, within a few minutes, 
when it would start running on a running wheel. It's just incredibly accurate. Uh, so that's why people study hamsters. It's a really, really sensitive, accurate um, system for, for studying circadian timing. Uh, but I also did a lot of work in, in rats as well and mice. And in general, you know, rats are useful for, for certain types of studies like learning studies. Um, you know, they're, they're quite clever animals. So if you're looking at uh, effects of circadian rhythms on learning and memory, which I was doing, I sometimes studied rats. Uh, we studied mice because, um, you know, they're, they're good uh, genetic knockouts that, that you could get easily with mice. Um, but hamsters, it was all about the, the beautiful accuracy of their circadian clock. And so when you have these hamsters in the lab, how, how does that, and, or even rats, and you talk about, you know, investigating the effects of sleep deprivation on learning, what would that look like? Because I'm, I'm sure people are going, you don't get a, a hamster or a rat to read a book or to do a test on an iPad. So how do you actually test learning in rats or hamsters? Well, there's, there's, uh, there's different ways. So we did a lot of uh, context conditioning. So we would, we would teach them to like one context and, uh, you know, be, be neutral, meh, about another context. And then we, would, uh, we could do manipulations of, of light cycles to see how that disrupts the ability to learn. Um, I did a lot of work on this, really, this accidental finding of a phenomenon called a, a timestamp. So we found that the, the time of day that these animals learned something was stamped into the learning experience. And so they would expect that learning experience to recur in 24-hour fashion. So if, it was, if you tested them 24 hours later, they were great. You know, 30 hours later, 32 hours later, almost like they didn't remember anything. 40 hours later, the same. But then 48 hours later, they seemed to remember again. So... Uh, there's this stamp of, of time of day on, on learning. So we're studying that, context learning, uh, spatial navigation, things like that. It's really easy to, with changing light cycles in, in these rodent models, you, you change the light cycle, you disrupt the clock, and you can see how that disrupts learning as well. So that's, that's quite a, uh, a popular thing that's done in, in circadian disruption and learning. And is there any um, crossover or... Um I suppose, applicability then to, to humans in terms of that, like in terms of timestamps with learning, is there a better time of day to learn uh, at the end of the week or in a cycle that they're in or time of the year with those light and dark cycles or even the lack of light? Does any of that sort of stuff cross over into humans and what could we take from that? I, w I would expect that it would, but it's not been, it's not been studied. So I, I think when it comes to certain kinds of learning, it's, it's likely that um, there will be a, a timestamp. I think it's probably a part of our natural history because we the important things we interact with in the world are them, themselves rhythmic as well so you know predators and prey themselves have 24-hour clocks and they will tend to to behave and hunt and do things at certain times of day so i, I imagine that uh, that it's the case that especially for things like um, spatial navigation or anything kind of based on um, the hippocampus although i, I don't, won't get too much into that uh, that we we probably have an expectation for 24-hour uh, rhythms in, in, in things recurring. So I, I think it could be useful, but, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's not been tested. And I do have some ideas for how it could, um, it could potentially uh, underlie some sleep disturbances, but 
again, we've, we've yet to test it. So in that same area, Sean, from the literature that you've seen and, and even from some of your ideas, is there a certain time of day that people may be better off, um, you know, spending time studying or trying to acquire knowledge? Is there a certain time of day even that, you know, listeners could take away, you know, like from half nine to half ten in the morning would be the best time for peak cognition or um, for memory? Is there any, any of that sort of stuff that you even kind of anecdotally would have seen? Not Well, I, I wouldn't say, um, you know, that there's a time of day that's that's best for studying. And, and people have been looking at this for a long time, like what times of day are better for this or that type of cognition. But it, it's generally not, not that easy to answer. Uh, I, I think keeping to a regular schedule is good. Getting a lot of sleep is, is beneficial. Um, I would just uh, say in general, if someone's trying to optimize their, their cognition, uh, regularity is probably the best thing they could do. Trying to do things at the same time of day. If you're yeah. going to learn something, try to try to stick to that schedule. You know, our, our bodies like patterns, uh, and they operate best. It seems when when we're sticking to a pattern. Yeah, yeah. People don't often like routine in business or in life. They think it's boring. But from routine, you can actually get some uh, <laughs> great improvements because you can well, build upon it. Build upon that. That's right, and, and yeah. you know, I'm I'm someone who in the past has kept pretty pretty crazy non routines, um, but I'm I'm keeping these these days over the past few years. I've I've been uh, more vigilant, and, and I watch my light cycles closely. I, I try to stick to, to times. I'll take my melatonin at exactly the same time every night, etc. And I do find that it it makes my my waking day and in my working life much more productive and I'm much more creative um, in, in my thinking when I'm at my best cognitively and I feel like I am when I keep to these boring schedules. So is, has that, um, has that Sean, has that transpired because you've, uh, you've turned 40 or is it because you uh, have become a great scientist? You're, you're uh, kind of adherent to these rules. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's always uh, there's a battle there. You know, you, 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 um, there's a little less leeway as you, as you get a little older. Uh, and so you've got to, you got to fight that with some good habits, I guess. Yeah. Cause but I know. I, uh, I, I do. Because, uh, I was going to say, since I turned 40, I've been, uh, been more and more diligent about going to bed. My Saturday night last week was going to bed at 10 past there, and I was very excited about going to bed at 10 past there. Okay, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that happens with me too. I, I often look at my watch and say, well, it's 7.30. Is it too early to go to bed? <laughs> I, I'd like to go to bed. Maybe I should. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was uh, quite saddened then as well because I thought 20 years ago, you know, I'd be just, you know, having a shower, getting ready to go out at this time on a Saturday night, it'd be, uh, it'd be even, it'd be, I wouldn't even be thinking about going out yet. So, um, no, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how life changes. <laughs> anyway, we all used to be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side of cognition, Sean, that a lot of people want to look at or ask a question about, is about physical performance or exercise. And I know it's in some of your earlier publications. You had a, a paper looking about exercise distributed across day and night does not alter circadian period in humans. Now, a lot of people will kind of I suppose come back and say you know if I, if I exercise really early in the morning it really helps me if I exercise at lunchtime it really helps me other people then say oh if I exercise really late at night I can't sleep or other people would say because I get up so early in the morning and exercise I don't feel good and um, what did you kind of find when you looked at this exercise and different time of day and the effect on uh, performance 
Well, that was a, a really long duration study where they were, they were looking at um, uh, three bouts of, of kind of intense exercise over the days, 45 minutes um, of exercise and a few times in the waking day. And it was done in, I think, if I remember correctly, it was a 42-day 40, study in the lab. They were on 20-hour days, and it allows you to separate the underlying 24-hour rhythm from a 24-hour sleep-wake cycle. And we're interested to see if exercise changes that underlying period. Uh, because people had done animal research showing that, um, that exercise can, can change, period. And we found that it didn't. So, you know, it's, it was an, a null null result, but uh, important in a way, I, I think we don't have to be concerned that, um, that exercise is going to somehow fundamentally disrupt how our, our clocks um, are running kind of under the surface. Having said that, um, we do believe, and we're starting to do some work now in, in my lab on how exercise can influence how our bodies respond to light. So I'm doing a, a lot of work in the area of depression, and I'm interested in how um, how the circadian system is uh, involved in depression. In a lot of people with depression, they have kind of uh, what we call a, a perpetual underlying jet lag almost. They have abnormal synchronization of their clocks. Uh, last year, we published something showing that um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are basically the first line of defense as an antidepressant, uh, they greatly increase how our circadian system responds to light. So that can have a couple of effects. One is that it, um, it allows people who are, have a low sensitivity to light potentially to synchronize better their clocks to the day. But also light has this acutely mood elevating effect. And we think that the, these SSRIs are allowing any ambient light around you to have more of a mood elevating effect. Now, I mention this now because we're, we're interested in exercise essentially um, having a, a similar effect as an antidepressant on the circadian system. So when you're, when you're active and moving around, uh, you'll be getting more serotonin input to the core clock at the base of the brain. That's what the SSRIs are, are doing as well. And so now with, with exercise, you can basically respond more to the light. So all the ambient light will elevate your mood. It will, uh, because it increases the effect of light on your clock, it can allow you to, to synchronize better to the day. So I'm, I'm interested, we're pursuing that, and we're, we're very interested in, in kind of getting at this circadian aspect of the antidepressant effects of exercise in the future. Yeah, and that some of that stuff has been um, maybe not so much on the circadian clock, but there has been numerous studies showing like that for people undertaking aerobic exercise, you know, four to five times a week out outdoors for thirty minutes each time, that eighty percent of people have reduced the effects of kind of transient depression. Yeah, um, exercise is a powerful yeah. antidepressant, and and you know, we're we think that there's a, a circadian mechanism for that. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, obviously, you'll be familiar with Russell Foster's work. Um, Russell and myself were speaking in the Pilbara in the northwest of Australia last week, and he was presenting some data on this. And I've seen Russell present this uh, similar data uh, 
previously, where he looked at not just in people with depression, but also in people with schizophrenia, those that are homeless, who are generally homeless because of mental health disorders as well. And it's quite interesting to watch the um, the effect of sleep um, on people with mental health disorders. Or uh, some of the interesting data that struck me was bipolar, people having you know periods of you know huge amount of wakefulness, um, which then you know resulted in a kind of a, a blowout in terms of a, a manic episode and then had to be hospitalized and so on. So it's very interesting. Yeah, and we just published uh, two weeks ago a, a paper showing that um, people with personality traits uh, related to bipolar disorder are hypersensitive to light. We use this um, sustained pupil response to, to blue light. So you, you've got circadian photoreceptors in your eye that respond optimally to blue light. And they're quite interesting and different from visual photoreceptors in that once they turn on, they don't turn off very quickly. Because these photoreceptors are just trying to tell, is it day or is it night? So unlike visual photoreceptors, they don't refresh, turn on and off really quickly. Um, and so we, we use that to, to look at uh, how sensitive people, those circadian photoreceptors are to light by looking at how long uh, and how, how much their pupils stay constricted in the dark after exposure to blue light. And we found that people who um, were basically had uh, mania-like uh, traits responded much more. So I think in general, they have a circadian system that is, is much more responsive to light. Now that, that could be good in that it's, it's mood elevating and certainly a, a state of hypomania feels good. It's, um, you know, you're, you feel productive, you feel energetic, uh, and that might be, you know, part of why people stay up. So they stay up, they're exposed to light and even relatively dim light uh, for these people um, could, could basically keep them alert, keep them awake. Uh, then you're having effects on your clock, which is, which is pushing it around in, in time. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think this light sensitivity uh, issue uh, is important in, in that regard as well when it comes to bipolar and, and you know, Russell's data there, um, I think, could probably be explained quite a bit in this circadian light sensitivity context. Yeah, no, it's very interesting, you know, and I, I know even for myself, like personally, you know, just the more exposure I get to daylight, um, if I travel a lot and I come home or I get to a new destination, just getting out into natural light, doing some exercise, you know, moderate to high intensity, particularly aerobic exercise, makes me feel so good, helps me to synchronize that new time zone, um, you know, helps me sleep that night as well, obviously probably because of the physical exertion, but basically just getting out into nature as well. There's something to it, I think, where um, you get out and get that natural light, especially when I don't wear sunglasses or a hat and I just kind of get that like high... Um, you know, exposure to natural light. For me, it definitely helps. And um, it's one of the big things for me is having as much natural light as possible. I've always yeah. found that. And from growing up in Ireland, where you don't get a lot of it, um, I really found a difference in my mood since I moved to Australia, hence why I haven't gone back. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I think in general, it's not, it's not a bad idea to, uh, to avoid fighting against your, your natural history. And, you know, we, we spent our time outside and our clocks evolve to, to get a strong onset of light and an offset of light. And that's, that's what our bodies seem to like. Um, yeah. But we spend most of our time uh, indoors, you know, 90% of our time indoors and, and, uh, and maybe we shouldn't. No, for sure. On that same topic then about people spend their time indoors or basically being on disrupted schedules, you've also done some work, Sean, looking at night shift workers and um, I suppose they're, 
their preference for fatty foods at the end of a night shift or during a night shift. Um, can you tell us a little bit about some of that work you've done? Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm very interested in uh, you know food and food choices, how food affects our sleep, um, and how sleep affects our our food choices, and there's there's definitely a, a cycle there. Uh, we we did this simulated night shift work where we we had people basically pulling an all nighter, and then they got to uh, freely choose from a from a buffet uh, what they wanted to eat. Uh, the interesting thing about that is it was a it's within subject studies, so the <coughs> people were kind of choosing from the same uh, amount of for the same food choices what they wanted, and they they tended to pick higher fat food uh, after pulling an all-nighter. There's different ways to interpret that. Um, you, know, you could say that they're making poorer food choices. Uh, and and that's, that's the common way of, of interpreting it. You know, when, when you're sleep deprived, your, your prefrontal cortex is, is uh, impacted. It stops you from being able to you know, make what we'd call good decisions, or at least makes it more difficult. Uh, and then they would choose maybe the, the fattier foods. We didn't find they had more carby foods, but fattier foods. But then another way of looking at it is, is maybe this is some kind of protective mechanism. And uh, maybe fat helps us uh, recover from sleep loss or when we're getting poor sleep. Uh, I, I would tend to think that now because I'm, I'm keto and I found, find that my high fat diet has resulted in some of the best sleep I've had uh, as an adult. So we'll see. We need. We still need to to look into this to test it. But there is some evidence from uh, it's about ten years ago. I can't recall the the reference, but showing that there's more uh, slow wave sleep on a high fat low carb diet than the other way around. So it might be the case that that fat allows us to recover from sleep loss, or it's some kind of you know protective impulse as well. Yeah, more work needs to be done there. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I reached out to Dom Diagostino a couple of years ago because he made some comments on some podcasts about, you know, improved sleep on a ketogenic diet. And I tried to find out and I looked for quite a while about what was the mechanism behind that. But it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, a reason behind that. And I, look, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in diet and nutrition, but I know that everybody reacts differently. You know, that everybody tries different things and um, maybe the keto is good for some, but not for others. And it can't always be a you know a one a one solution for everybody. So, you know, I'd be interested to see that. The reason I, I get interested in the diet nutrition aspect is when I'm dealing with shift workers because, you know, your study had a night of simulated like what's say shift worker sleep and which resulted in sleep loss for those choices. But we often deal with people who do twenty eight nights straight. Mm. So how does that affect it? You know, because that's one night. But then if you're constantly consuming fatty food for twenty eight nights. We see with a lot of shift workers, you know, increase in body weight. I was presenting some data um, recently from in the oil and gas industry, and there's not that many papers published in oil and gas, but out of the papers I found, I think it was less than five, if you look on average, the BMI of an oil and gas worker is between 27 and 41, mm. and the average age is, uh, you know, in the mid-40s, um, and 97% male. So when you start looking at it from that perspective, then, you look at the increased risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So whilst it might help from a protective mechanism about recovering from sleep, it may start leading to, you know, further, you know, sleep disorders because as BMI goes up, we know in men, 
when BMI hits 31, nearly a 90% chance of developing obstructive sleep apnea. So it may help them recover from sleep, but then it may start getting disruption once they're kind of this tipping point of the BMI hits a certain point. And that's why I always get interested in the diet nutrition aspects of, of shift work. Yeah, sure. But the, I mean, these, these kinds of protective mechanisms didn't, didn't evolve to deal with something like 29. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we're, we're short circuiting, you know, a system that, that it, it developed for, you know, for, for dealing with reasonable challenges, not these ridiculous things that we impose on ourselves. Uh, so it, it, it might be protective and then it's, it's just completely out of whack because we're, we're doing this massively unnatural thing. Yeah, and that's like what Ken Ken Wright study and and a few other authors there showed. I can't remember everybody on that paper, but recently they showed that like I think it was you know sleep loss during the week, and then trying to you know catch up on the weekend. Mm-hmm. It was fine for kind of one week you'll get away with it, but repeated weeks like even the second week, I think people resulted in having like you know being basically pre-diabetic, mm-hmm. and um, and gained weight as well. So, like you say probably built to get away with it for a short term, one night or even some sleep loss over a week. Yeah. But you keep doing that week on, week you know, week in, week out, you know, and, and I get this argument from a lot of people in, in the industry, whether it be oil and gas, military, whatever it might be. Yeah, but we just get used to it and we adapt to it and we can manage it. It's like, well, not you really. Don't. Yeah, you don't. I mean, people think that because they, they get used to a new normal and the new yeah. normal is feeling terrible. Hmm. Uh, and you just cope with it. Uh, you know, most people live in this kind of state of, of being a, a little bit sleep deprived and, and then they, they counter it with, you know, caffeine or, or whatever drugs they, they want to take. But if you, you know, if you go out camping or you, you just stick to the regular light, dark cycle and you sleep what you need to sleep, you, you realize that you're not supposed to feel like that at all. Mm. Uh, you're, you're supposed to feel pretty alert, um, pretty cognitively together. Um, and that, that these things just, um, you know, this, that new normal is, is, is just abnormal. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Yeah. People think that, you know, 28 nights is, is quite normal and it's, and it's definitely not, especially 28 nights of 12 hour shift. It's, it's near on impossible in my opinion. So yeah, no, anyway, people chase the money. So Sean, um, <laughs> you also, uh, last year had a great article out about the sleep calculator, um, in terms of you know, why it might be a terrible idea to be using sleep calculators or apps or trying to figure out, you know, when to wake up. Um, obviously, this was a piece that wasn't, it was, it was kind of in popular media around this. And we often get this question as well to the podcast. We often get this question in industry, sports people, you know, everybody kind of, uh, the number one thing as well, I've bought this app or I have this calculator and it's really helping me sleep. Um, and I always say, is it really? Like, how do you know it's working? Whatever it might be. And my catch cry to everybody is sleep apps are shit. Uh, <laughs> or sleep calculators are shit, <laughs> really. Um, to, use a, to use a scientific term, um, which makes people laugh, but I kind of, we start discussing them. So I'd be interested, Sean, to, um, if you could let our listeners know about what you found with sleep calculators and why you think it may be a bad idea. Well, you know, I, what I don't like, the, 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 the reason I said it's a terrible idea, and which was uh, in, the, in the title of that news story, um, <laughs> which, which I do believe, the idea that in, you want to wake out of REM. That's fine. It's easier to wake out of REM sleep than, than non-REM. Um, but to cut your sleep short, because you think based on a 90 minute cycle that you're going to be in REM at this point, 
you know, it, it's, it's crazy to think that you're ever going to accurately uh, time waking out of REM. And so the thing I didn't like is that you, you, instead of sleeping a bit more, which in general is going to be the better idea, you would cut your sleep short, let's say by a half an hour, because you think based on a 90 minute cycle and whatever time you, you fall asleep, like who knows if you fall asleep when you think you're going to fall asleep. But based on that, you, you, you cut your sleep short to wake out of REM. I just, I think that's a bad idea. This is, it's in general going to be the worst <laughs> that, you, that you could do. Um, just let, let yourself sleep a little bit more. That's, that's going to be better than trying to hack your, your sleep and wake out of REM. So Sean, you believe that people um, from, from your work that, you know, people will, should basically naturally wake up when sleep debt has been recovered, that the internal kind of mechanism will, will drive people to sleep for what's needed. Um, and unless they have some crazy sleep disorder, which will be very, very few people, probably less than 1% or even less again of people that might, you know, sleep, sleep too long. So most people, 99.9% of people are going to sleep until basically sleep debt has been recovered and then they will naturally wake up. Yeah, that that's just seems to be the better way of doing things rather than cut your sleep short on the off chance that this calculator is going to be able to help you wake out of REM. Uh, it's just, mm. just get a little more sleep. That's, that seems to be the better idea. But, uh, you know, a lot of people making making apps or giving advice, um, you know, the, the, they, they don't necessarily uh, know what they're talking about. Oh, 100%. And, and Sean and I were talking about this before the podcast started, that marketing is basically killing science, I think. You know, there are so many good sleep scientists um, in the world who are doing really good work, you know, um, validating technologies, um, taking objective measures, and then some device comes out on the market with, with great marketing, but has no validity behind it, and people flock to it, and then have 110% faith in that device, and then when they talk to an expert, they start arguing with them. So that's why I just don't entertain the arguments anymore. I just go, look, if you believe that device works X, Y, and Z, just keep going for it. You paid the money, so you believe in it. Don't ask me, like, you know. And I'm sure you get that same thing as well, Sean, where people want to argue with you about the validity of a sleep app or a new type of wrist-worn device or some headband they're wearing because it's set on an ad, it measures sleep and uh, eliminates fatigue. Right. I mean, people just, they generally assume that if something got on the market, that, um, that it's been tested, but it's, you know, just, just look at the, the supplement industry. You know, you've got supplements that'll, that'll make all sorts of claims, but, are, you know, they, they do often little more than make your urine expensive. So it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to fight against. Um, you just have to keep doing your good research and, and, and making, you know, better products, hopefully. Yeah. So, Sean, um, the last area I want to talk about this morning before uh, you head off to do some uh, more research on hamsters this morning is uh, your recent My hamster days, my hamster days are over. I just imagine you walking around Monash campus with like 20 hamsters on little leashes, bringing them for a walk <laughs> mid-morning while you're getting your coffee. Look, I wish, I wish. <laughs> um, so your recent paper that came out from uh, yourself, Andrew Phillips, and, and, and a numerous cast there of, you know, uh, well-to-do authors, including our good friend, Claire, who's on holidays at the moment, uh, is the <laughs> high sensitivity and inter-individual variability in the response of the human circadian system to evening light. Now, this paper came to my attention on Twitter because, um, obviously, as you know, it's very hard to keep up with lots of papers. But one of the reasons I, I came across this paper was a lady called Olivia Walsh uh, made some great little comics summarizing your papers. 
and I've reached out to Olivia to see if she can probably do some work for us, but she's so busy uh, at the moment. But she had some great little like comic book um, infographs that hopefully we can put into the show notes, you know, um, showing your work, which I think is a great way to get it out to the, to the general masses. But, um, you know, really this, uh, this paper was looking at the effect of, you know, lighting levels before sleep and how people had different sensitivity to it. And obviously, a lot of people talk about electronic devices, blue light. Does it really affect sleep onset latency? Um, you know, myself and Russell had this conversation a few weeks ago, and I've got my own criticism of some of the papers out there because some show a statistical effect on sleep onset latency, but is it clinically relevant? For example, you know, a delay of five or ten minutes for sleep onset latency. Is that really, you know, really an effect? In some of my own research looking at athletes, uh, we found no effect of electronic devices on sleep. Um, and then another paper I worked on with Madison Jones in the laboratory found no effect basically on melatonin, cortisol, or even next day performance, whether it had um, different types of light exposure the night before in terms of reading off a Kindle or an iPad or off magazine. So it's quite interesting in your study, um, you found this inter-individual variability um, in the response to the human circadian system. So can you talk us through, Sean, kind of uh, the background of that paper and, and how you measured it? Sure. I mean, you've, you've got about 10 things that I want to Sorry. comment on. Uh, <laughs> there. The, the background, this is a, this is a, um, a, a study um, that, was, that was funded here in Australia uh, by the NHMRC, and uh, it, it took several years to run. It was just a massive, it was such a big study to run. Um, our um, our uh, pet name for the study was Super Mega. It was just massive. So we brought, um, in the end, we had data from uh, 55 people in that paper. And they came in over six or seven weeks and were exposed to multiple different light levels. So we essentially, for an individual, uh, had a full dose response curve to light. And so we were able to very sensitively measure each individual's light sensitivity as measured with melatonin suppression. So one of the one of the big findings was that there was a 50 to 60 fold difference between individuals. So there is no one size fits all for people. Uh, there it was a massive massive difference. So some people had 50% of their melatonin suppressed at under 10 lux. So 10 lux would be 10 lux of light would be less than almost anyone has in their home. Uh, but on, on average, people actually had 50% of their melatonin suppressed at under 30 lux, which is about what you'd get off of a, you know, a phone or a bedside lamp. Um, so I, I think it's happening to most people that they're getting quite a bit of melatonin suppressed in the evening. It's just that people are, are quite different one to the other. Now, uh, as far as your point about sleep onset and, and whether, um, you know, whether, whether these devices uh, alter sleep onset, yeah, you know, I think measuring sleep onset is tricky because a lot of people study it in, you know, the, the, the athletes of sleep, you know, the, the super young people. Mm. Uh, like a few years ago, Anne-Marie Chang at Harvard Medical School published something uh, where they, they had people looking at iPads before bed uh, they were getting, I think they were getting something like 40, 50 lux. They, they did have suppression. They had a shifting, a delay of, of the clock. They had a, a sleep onset latency delay. I think in that case, it was around 10 minutes. 
and then they had um, you know they had poor functioning on the next day. Now these people, yes, ten minutes doesn't sound like much. Is it clinically relevant? But these people were massively screened. They had no sleep disorders. They were young. They were, I think, they were in their early twenties on average. These people can sleep very, very easily. And this is why, you know, when when you're in your twenties and, and and you go out drinking, um, you can go out drinking the the next night as well, because you can actually recover some of your sleep. And and uh, we, Ian, uh, at our age, maybe <laughs> we're not doing that so much anymore. You know, so when you're studying like the, 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 the sleep athletes, the elite sleepers, then, you know, a 10 minute sleep onset latency uh, difference is, is quite significant. And, and if you're looking at, um, you know, the effects of, of drugs that induce sleep, that's not far off what, you know, what the average change in latency is for, for drugs that are, you know, multi-billion dollar industry. So I I wouldn't uh, I, I I do hear uh, people say well is it is it clinically relevant but I think you got to look at you got to look at the population if you've got really super healthy sleepers who also probably live under a certain amount of sleep debt in general then small changes in sleep onset latency can be significant now that's sleep we're not just affecting sleep. These, these devices, this light, um, you know, it, it, sleep is a small part of what I care about on the effects of light. It's really the effects on the circadian system. So even if you can't measure some effect on sleep, you're still affecting the circadian system. And what I show is that this, this light is having a massive impact on, on melatonin suppression, even at, at low levels in general. Now, that could affect your sleep, maybe not. Who knows about your sleep background and, uh, and, and whether that's a measurable thing. What you're also doing is affecting your internal clock's time. You're tricking it into thinking it's day when it's night. You're disrupting rhythms throughout your body. You know, you've got, you've got clocks in your heart and your liver and everywhere in your body, your pancreas. When you disrupt and give a, a bad signal for day or night with these devices and light at night, you're doing lots of other things other than impacting sleep. Sleep is just one of the things that can you, you can see an effect in. Uh, there's there's dozens of other systems that that could be um, that could be negatively affected. It's not all about sleep. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I really like that, Sean. Is because you might positively affect something or negatively affect one thing. And, you know, you're looking at the, the kind of first line of defense or the first impact, but what's all the other things that happen after that as well? You know, that's, that's really interesting. And I think your, your point about the, um, I suppose, let's say the resilience due to age in terms of sleep that is very interesting. I know myself, when I was younger, when I was in the military, you could really kind of bounce back really quick from sleep loss, um, you know, either on the weekend from going out having a few drinks or due to sleep loss in infantry sort of tactics. With your group, you had 55, like you said, people aged between 18 and 30. Did you find any effect of the age across that group? Or not across that, <laughs> not across that group, but we, we really had mostly um, the, the early 20s. So it wasn't that much spread. And, and we did that for a reason. We were within a, a, you know, a tight group of healthy people. Uh, what kind of variation is there? So if we find a 50 to 60-fold variation within this tight age group, who are who you know have no sleep disorders or anything like that? Imagine what it is out in the world where you know where people are different by age. We know there's yeah. a, there's a big effect of age on uh, light light sensitivity, effects of light on the clock. 
Uh, now we know from my study last year, which was the first study uh, done in humans to show a, in a, an effect of drugs on increasing the, the response to light. You know, imagine all the drugs that we don't even know haven't had an effect on, on the circadian system yet. So the, the variation out in the real world is, is probably you know, many times more than that. And so um, for anybody at home, Sean, sitting there going, hmm, wonder what my kind of sensitivity is to light. Is there any which way they might be able to, able to do this at home themselves? Do they need to shine an, a, a torch in their eye, burn a candle in their ear? Is there any which way they can, uh, they can figure out their own, um, their own sensitivity? Yeah, not yet, but soon. Watch this. But soon. Because, Watch this. Um, yeah, I'm involved in, in the, the creation of some uh, tests and wearables that, uh, that, that we'll be able to, to get at that. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's maybe a, a year or two away. Let's say, let's say a year. Bring me back on in a year, and then I'll, I'll spruik that stuff. Well, that's, that's, that's a great way to probably finish up today's podcast and also a great way to keep people hanging for a, a follow-up in 12 months. Uh, Professor Sean Ken, it's been a pleasure, interesting talk, really enjoyed it, and I um, want to thank you for your time today. Great, thank you. It was very good. So, Sean, for anybody who's listening and wants to follow your work, is there any sort of social media handles that people can follow you on, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram? Any other thing you're on? Yeah, look, I'd, yeah, I'd appreciate. I'm. Uh, I, I could use some more uh, Twitter followers. So I'm uh, at Circadian two four seven on Twitter. Uh, I am on LinkedIn. If people want to want to approach me there. Okay, excellent. We will put the, that information. The show notes. We'll also put a nice, pretty picture of Sean in there, so you can see his beautiful ketogenic face. Um, now that he's glowing and healthy, sporting a new trim beard. That's great. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so we'll put that up, we'll put that all up onto the show notes so once again Sean thank you very much for your time really appreciate it thank you very much for having me so that was Associate Professor Sean Ken. once again thank you Sean for making some time available really appreciate it uh, looking forward to having you back on in 12 months to discuss some of this work in terms of um, identifying people's sensitivity to light cycles and how that suppresses melatonin definitely interested in having a look at this I'm keen to figure out my own uh, light suppression uh, issues that I may have because I do enjoy to read a book before bed and I've been known to to watch a scary show before sleep as well anyway we will leave it there for this month thank you very much Sean and thank you very much for everybody who's been tuned into the podcast if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes please do so and uh, please feel, feel free feel free sleep deprived to share this episode to as many people as you wish it is free please make it available until next month sleep well